Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 103, The Strong Quaker Women of Nantucket, an interview with Suzanne Woods Fisher coming to you on Thursday, October 11th, 2018. I don't really know anything at all about Nantucket Island and basically that whole area of the world. Probably the last time that I took a class that had anything to do with um, like the pilgrims coming over and that sort of thing, I was probably in the junior high or something. But we have the most interesting conversation about Nantucket and the whaling industry and all the history that Suzanne found out about and all the famous families of America that have some roots there. It's a really interesting interview. So if you're interested in history, the Northeastern United States, strong women, and Quakerism, or any of the above, I think you'll really have a good time listening to our talk. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day. Today's guest is Suzanne Woods Fisher. Suzanne is an award-winning, best-selling author of more than two dozen books, including Phoebe's Light, Minding the Light, the Amish Beginnings series, the Bishop's Family series, and the Inn at Eagle Hill series, as well as nonfiction books about the Amish, including Amish Peace and The Heart of the Amish. She lives in California. Welcome, Suzanne. Kitty, thanks for having me today. It's good to have you here. This is going to be fun, and you have such a beautiful uh, autumnal background where, where you're sitting right now, if anyone can see on YouTube. I live in Northern California, so autumn comes late to us, but it is kind of fun to just start getting everything, you know, putting the decorations out and the pumpkins out and things like that. I have a great big garden in the back, so I have oh. a bunch of pumpkins I just harvested and put by the front door. Hopefully, we'll stay. <laughs> your pumpkins are from your, from your backyard? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah that is have, so cool. I know. I, I love gardening, and I'm... I love it more than the produce I get from it. It's like I end up with a $5,000 tomato, you know, but I, water is so expensive in California. We live in a drought state, but I do love it. It's really part of, you know, one of those moments in your day that you just take a pause when you're up in the garden. Oh, that is so nice. And a lot of grapes. Oh, really? Yeah. California. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I do love me some grape vineyard uh, kinds of areas of the world. Any place where I can like try out a new bottle of wine, I'm like, ooh, this is good. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually, we just went to an apple festival last weekend. So that was super fun. fun. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't really get the feeling of um, autumn that much when you live in Southern California, which is where I've spent an awful lot of time, uh, and not so much in Sydney, where I've spent, you know, a few years also. So going to a place where there was actually trees with red leaves and apple cider and caramel apples and chocolate-covered apples, I was like, oh, I am in my happy place. <laughs> that reminds me, we had lived in Hong Kong for four years, and we were in a 44-story high-rise. Wow. Four children in, oh. in a small apartment. And I think that's why I love to garden so much. I think I have never, you know, lost that sense of how precious space is. And we loved our years there. It was great. We dragged our kids there and we dragged them home again. It was an incredible experience for our family. But there's some things that just keep lingering, like the sense of you know, being in my garden and having room. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can imagine. I do remember eating tomatoes out of my aunt and uncle's garden when they were so warm from the sun and thinking, wait, since when did a tomato taste like this? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, this is really interesting because you live in California. You were talking about California and Hong Kong, but the series that we're talking about, and I'm not sure about the other series, though it sounds like a lot of them are also kind of Northeastern United States, but the series that we're talking about with your new book is Nantucket, which is the east, uh, eastern seaboard, northeastern seaboard of the United States, yes? 30 miles out to sea, yeah, right off of the elbow of Cape Cod, like, you know, kind of right out there, further than Martha's oh. Vineyard, so Martha's Vineyard tends to get more tourists and all, because it's easier, but Nantucket is is out there, too, and it is just this beautiful little triangle of land that has a rich history in our country, and it's fascinating. I got interested in it in gosh, the 1990s, I, Nantucket was always kind of one of those idyllic places. And in my mind, my mom had grown up on the East Coast and had traveled there in the 30s. So she had vacationed there. And in our living room was a kind of a painting of Nantucket long, long ago, the iconic Main Street cobblestones and horse water bucket. It's just such a fountain, I guess, just a beautiful place. But I went to Nantucket for the first time in the 1990s. I wasn't, I was a writer of magazine articles for while I was raising my children. And I wrote for quite a few magazines. Even while I was in Hong Kong, I continued to keep writing. But I always sort of thought of myself as a nonfiction writer. Like I had really worked on research skills and how to dig information and how to get to experts. And having four kids was just fabulous. They were constantly providing me material, you know, just. (laughs) So, but I was walking down the street early one morning in Nantucket because I'm an early riser, like you had mentioned you are. And I was, uh, the street is called Center Street, but its nickname is Petticoat Row. Oh. Called that is because during the whaling period, there was, I don't know, 50 to 100 years, a century, when Nantucket was actually the wealthiest port in the entire world, the entire world. It was all because of whale oil, because of the insatiable desire for illumination and ease, just like now. Um, And it was was really almost like the New York City of, of the world at one time. So this, the men naturally left for the sea for years and years, especially when they were overfishing the Atlantic, they built bigger, better ships that could render the whale on board so they, their ships could go longer and longer and longer over to the Pacific, everywhere. Um, and the women were left alone. So they ran Nantucket. They really ran the businesses. They took care of each other. It's almost, to this day, I think most, I think the publications are owned by women in Nantucket. They're, they're strong women. And I love that about it. So I always thought, even in the 1990s, before I even considered writing a novel, that, oh, there's a story here. There's a story here. So <laughs> kind of, you know, 20 years later now, the stories are out. But, and, and that's a whole other story. But I um, just am so excited to have these books out. I've loved it. I've loved studying. I think, to me, Nantucket isn't necessarily the modern vacation destination that's not what's drawing me today as beautiful as it is. It's yeah. the history of the island. It's just rich. Wow. 
Well, I have to say, just reading, you know, some of the the information about you and your books and that sort of thing, I was like, okay, as it turns out, I just realized I know almost nothing about Nantucket, like literally. And and uh, you, you were you, you make it sound like, I mean, the things that um, I guess what I'm trying to say is. I have read your press release. <laughs> and, um, it's always hard sometimes to make a conversation sound normal when it's like, okay, obviously you two don't know each other. <laughs> but yes, I read your press release and the things that you were talking about having to do with like the amazing history and the amazing people. And you mentioned Frederick Douglass. I'm like, oh my gosh, I remember reading about him when I was a kid and thinking he was the most amazing person I'd ever read about. I was probably like in the sixth grade and reading one of those you know, for young readers books uh, that were biographies about famous people. So, uh, I mean, is this where, uh, how you got some of your interest in this area? Or did you just go there for the first time one time and go, wow, I, I'm so in love? Okay, so Kitty, here's the fun <laughs> thing about Nantucket. So I'm going to throw some names out to you, and you tell me if they're familiar to you or not. Okay. Macy. Well, Okay. So the names that I was reading, I'm like, these can't be the names that I'm familiar with in the 21st century because I'm thinking Macy's Department Store. Right. Folgers. Same family? Folgers. Folgers Coffee. No, Folgers Coffee, same family. It goes on and on. There were these, you know, a certain amount of people, I think it was maybe 11 families or which counted more people, but like 11 figureheads. And they... This is way back when it was colonial America. They were sick of the persecution and the, of the Puritans over on the mainland. They were living in Massachusetts. And they ended up purchasing this island, <laughs> settling it. And they, you can tell what kind of people they were. They did not want anybody messing with them. They wanted to be left alone. So they were, I think, you could say they were religious people. There was a variety of religions represented, but they wanted no paid clergy on that island. So for for probably 50 years, 40 to 50 years, and we're talking 1650 to 1700, there were, I mean, when clergy did visit, they were sort of chased off the island. (laughs) And there was the Coffin families, the, um, the Macy, the Starbucks. That's a, different story. It it has a connection to the coffee, but it's not through, you know, the genealogical lineage. Um, It has to do with Moby Dick and all that. But, (laughs) you know, so back to just these, these families that were just hardy souls and they're well known in Nantucket today, Mitchell and Barnard and Coleman and, you know, sort of, you know, certain, certain, uh, the lineage is still, they're still so proud of. But anyway, these families, made a living out of this island. And there was this young woman named Mary Coffin. Her father was one of the first, um, you know, two proprietors, they called themselves a proprietor. Tristan Coffin was his name. So Mary Coffin was about 15 when she moved to Nantucket. And this is in the 1650s, 1660 maybe. And she ended up falling in love with a fellow named Nathaniel Starbuck. They had their first child, so the first white child born on the island. She ended up having eight to ten children, I believe. I don't maybe eight lived to adulthood. Um, she became a um, had the first store on Nantucket. She traded and she kept an account book. Wow! And the interesting thing, 
besides just to stay with Mary Coffin Starbuck for a moment is this was a man's world. And somehow she was able to gain the reputation where she was called Great Mary and likened to the Deborah of the Old Testament. She had just wisdom. And when I held her accounting book when I was in the Nantucket Historical Association, and that was such a moment in my life, like one of those moments where you sign your whole life away, everything gets put away, no camera, no anything, you wear gloves, and they go down in the vault and they bring it out. And you're turning pages that are 400 years old of this woman's daily life. It wasn't a diary. It was really an accounting book. Yeah. But to see her handwriting, to see her intelligence, to see that she was involved with everybody in that island, Native Americans, fishermen, traders, men, women. She was the hub. She was just the heart and the soul of that island. Fascinating woman. Well, Later, and one thing interesting too, again, this was British America, so everything was pence and pounds and shillings and all. Beautiful, beautiful handwriting, clearly literate, no spelling errors even. Her husband was illiterate. Oh, wow. And they were known to have a beautiful marriage. So I I think that's just kind of an interesting piece of this story of her life, that she gave such respect to him as he was, uh, loved him so much. So carrying on now she's now about my age in her 50s and at this point she's realizing that Nantucket probably needs some kind of scaffolding of, of faith it's it's just too much happening in different directions people pulling different the islands growing there's more generations coming people more settlers coming in and she in is influenced by a missionary a Quaker missionary who comes to Nantucket from England and has an experience there, probably, now again, she's a strong, dynamic woman, probably some of the appeal of Quakerism to her at this point, not 50 years earlier, but now where Quakerism is beginning to have some legs to it and strength and isn't quite considered as radical as it had been. Mm-hmm. Women are equal in the sight of Quakers. Oh, and I'm sure this had something to do with Mary Coffin Starbuck's appeal and she can, became what they call a, um, a con, is it a conversion? I think it was a con, she didn't, well, she became a Quaker at that point. They have an actual term for it and converted really the whole island. So essentially, I mean, as a whole, I, I, not like it was forced, but it was, became the dominant religion. She was one of yeah. the first ministers. Her, I think her husband donated the land and her son was, she and her son together were, two of the first ministers at the Friends in Nantucket and really set the stage for Nantucket later becoming on the world stage because Quakerism brought this sense of um, integrity in business dealings, in frugality and um, strength and work ethic and all this as Nantucket went into the whaling period. So long story, but I just love Mary Coffin Starbuck. So why I bring this up is because, and I'm holding up my book for those of you who are not on YouTube right now, and this is the cover of The Light Before Day. There's three books in this series, and this is the last of the three. And I took Mary Coffin Starbuck's life, and I divided it into three parts in her journal. So she Uh is represented in all three of these books. The main character of the books are her 
granddaughter, great granddaughter, great 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 granddaughter. But her her journal as and the journal's fictitious. I'm just really trying to draw who I thought she was, and I I hope to meet her in heaven one day and find out if I was even close. But <laughs> I tried to represent a strong, feisty, and yet wise, thoughtful woman who was willing to go against the grain, and her her journal is passed kind of considered a book of wisdom and it's passed from generation to generation to the one who needs the wisdom the most, which ends up being the main character of each of the stories. So anyway, right. Mary, you're going to meet Mary in three parts through the story, you know, through the all three books. I just find her wow. so fascinating. I love those kinds of women, those kinds of untold stories. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, she does sound like somebody else I need to read more about. Uh, it seems like every time somebody talk, talks about some real historic character that they just kind of fell in love with and then somehow incorporated in one way or another into their stories. I'm always like, okay, I haven't heard of that character either, but I really want to <laughs> learn more about it. Some of those stories about women, especially in a man's world, who have found a way to have a voice and yet not be a man. They are who they are. And probably my guess is it's probably through wisdom. Yeah. Yeah that that is how they've been able to rise above. You know, it's funny. Uh, last week's uh, guest, um, Clara Eliza Bartlett, she has a, a you know totally different kind of book. Uh, it's, um, it's not dystopian. It's not alternate history. She was say, saying that, um, you know, I, I hesitate to call it alternate history because people have a certain expectation about what that is. But it's, um, it's real history that she has now changed in various ways and it has magic and it's, you know, YA. And so it's, it's all just very kind of, um, uh, you know, not real, not at all real. But one of the things that she used was one of the real life kind of, um, historic components that she used and that influenced her book was the, um, night witches from world war two, the Russian, uh, flying squad. Have you heard of these people? No, no, oh my gosh. See, and this is what happens is that I was almost like getting the podcast episode up because I was like, oh, I should link to that for anyone who doesn't know, you know, where it is. And so I found a Wikipedia link and like a history.com link. And, and I'm like, here are some articles. And, and then I had to go and read the articles myself, even though I had heard of them about a year ago is the first time that I've heard of them. But it was this whole um, kind of Air Force squad of women in Russia who basically ended up being heroes of the war and were disbanded immediately after and then never talked about again by Russia. But one of the articles that I was reading said the woman who started it and you know all the reasons why she said, you've got, you've got to let us do this. You don't have enough men. You don't have enough people. We, we need to help. And, but she said, or in this article, it was saying that she was telling the women, we are women and we are proud of being women. And therefore, we're not going to try to usurp the men's territory. We're going to do our job. We're going to go fly our planes and drop bombs over the Germans. And then apparently, according to this article, they would come back and do embroidery <laughs> and, and other normal 1940s women type things. And I'm like, I love that. I mean, the sense of self-confidence and self-worth to be able to do both of those two things in the same day. And, and so your woman, Mary Coffin Starbucks, sounds like also the same kind of like, wow, is she someone I kind of want to aspire to be like? I know. I think especially her marriage, and I have her love story through the book, but you know, to think that she 
there's um, comments that are historically accurate that, you know, nonfiction that talk about their marriage and that, that she is a, she was a bolder, stronger person and yet, and almost her husband paled behind her, but she did not do that. She always brought him in and if they had a decision to make, it would be Nathaniel and I are both under consideration. We agree with this. You know, and I think there's a lot of, of um, I don't know, modern day wisdom in that, just how you let another person be who they are and, and respect them for the way God made them. Yeah, I like it. Wow. Okay. Now, so this book is book three of the series. And so this is a, this is a full trilogy. Your story is, get, is getting wrapped up in this book, right? Yes. I have a story arc that goes through the entire book. Really, it's a story of Nantucket. It's rise and it's fall. Because oh, it was so- years that it was, it was, you know, like I said, on this, the spotlight of the world was on it. And then it, it plunged to a, it really dropped hard and fast. Oh. In 1846. And that's not a big surprise. It's, it's at the end of this book, but there was a fire that swept through the town and devastated it, burned oh. over a third of Nantucket. Um, thousand people were homeless. I mean, the whale oil that had been stored down at the wharves blew up and oh. there was like what they called almost a sea of fire that just went out, burned three out of the four wharves. I mean, it was, it was devastating. Wow. But it was also um, really like the final blow to a sagging economy because there was a sandbar that had been developing in the harbor. So ships had to be further out and there was an ingenious system to bring this, the um, barrels of oil in that was getting more and more complicated. New Bedford and Salem were starting to rise as the um, places that were closer to railroads, they were easier ports. And kerosene had been invented, so whale oil was not quite as necessary because the whales had been overfished anyway. And then there's the gold rush. And the Nantucket sailors <laughs> were gone off. They finished chasing whales, and now they were chasing gold. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So because of that, Nantucket is a little bit locked in time. It's, yeah. it's kind of like, whereas Martha's Vineyard has continued to grow and evolve and it has a lot of variety, Nantucket has a unique period of, of history with the historical side as well as the architecture, the, um, the smaller, that kind of thing. It's, it's just a, you almost feel like you're traveling back in time a little bit as you walk down the streets. Wow. Narrow and cobblestone, and, you know, very picturesque, very, very special. So is it more of a tourist community now, or do they have a way to to make a living there now? That's such a good question, because interestingly, it was after the Civil War that tourism began because the steamship was invented. So as the steamship came up, then tourism and the, you know, the world was kind of writing itself again, in, in just like after World War II, when tourism began again, and after the, you know, late 40s, early 50s. And so it is really tourism gave it a new life. And that's what it has been up and down and up and down. But it's, it's now a very expensive place to go. Oh, very exclusive. I would highly recommend if I'd, I'd love everybody to get there. It's just so such a fun, beautiful place. And of course, the, the um, beauty of it is free. <laughs> the, the beaches, the air, the wildlife, the you know, just the, the parts about it that are, belong to everybody. But wow. it is um, 
not an easy, you know, I, I recommend, for example, I think the population swells from, I may not have this exactly right, but I think, I think the year round population is around 12 to 15,000. And in the summer, it's 60,000. Oh, yeah. That sounds like my old hometown in Michigan. Traverse City is like yeah. 15,000. Yeah. And then during Cherry Festival, it's like 150,000 or something. And yeah. it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and now you kind of make me want to go there because I'm like, oh, I understand that. I grew up in a town like that. <laughs> there's a reason people want to come. It's worth it. But yeah. there's one more piece I wanted to mention. Well, there's probably a bunch more, but one in particular is there's a whaling museum in Nantucket. And this is one of the best reasons to go because it's just a beautiful, gorgeous old, it's in an old candle factory and very well done and an awesome docent. Great big skeleton of a whale above the head, you know. I can, it's actually speaking there on Thursday, the 18th of October at 12 o'clock. If anyone's you know in the area, um, you're going to be speaking there. Yes, I'm going to be speaking there. Oh and well, let's be let's be clear about like exactly. So this is on Nantucket Island, and that's it's at the the Peter Folger Whaling Museum, which is right downtown. You know, not far from where the ferry brings you off and drops you and speaking at 12 o'clock on Thursday the 18th. But the reason I actually bring that up is Peter Folger is also a factor in my book. And as we mentioned, Folger Coffee, that actually is a company out of San Francisco, but the family goes back to these, this original Folger. Peter Folger was not an early, the earliest proprietor, but he was connected to them and he did later move on to the island. And he was born in England, came over to the new world, Really, I think probably America's first Renaissance man. Just, um, he was a surveyor. He was a minister, a Baptist minister. He was a teacher. He taught the American Indians, the Wapanoags in, on Nantucket Island. He learned their language and shared faith with them without altering their culture. Oh, you yeah. Know, beautiful sense of missionary, just so right. And just had, wasn't necessarily a wealthy man, but just a wise, interesting man. And Mary Coffin Starbuck, he was older than her and married and had a family of his own, but he was, um, they interacted. And I think she thought quite highly of him. Okay, so Kitty, let's go two generations later. Who does that sound like in American history? Just grab anybody. Who, who could that? Somebody like Mary, you mean? Like Peter Folger, oh, you know, um, Renaissance guy, surveyor, teacher, inventor. Um, you know. Oh boy, I'm thinking about people like Lewis and Clark, or um, I don't know. Did Thomas Edison was he a teacher? Um. <laughs> let's go like two generations later. Like let's go to the hundred years later in the 1700s. All right, um, Benjamin Franklin. Yes, it's his grandfather. What? Yes. That is the coolest thing. Isn't that the coolest thing? I just love that. I love that little piece of history. Because oh, the DNA, you see it. You see Benjamin yeah. Franklin and many of their relatives. And because Benjamin Franklin's mother was born on Nantucket, she was Peter Folger's daughter. Oh. And you just see this remarkable DNA. Oh, my the gosh. Bright, wide mind, this thoughtful, creative spark. And... Anyway, that is so cool. It's 
You know, it's funny because something about uh, the way that I was taught or the way that I understood what I thought I was being taught in high school and college, I really, really, really detested research papers. Uh, It just probably wasn't brought to my attention in such a way that I understood the amazing possibilities of it. But now that I'm a writer and I hear other writers talk about things that they, you know, did research on for a book, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's cool and that's cool. And I just think that's really, really, really interesting. Well, you know what I think the reason you feel this way is it was so dry. And yet when you're a writer, you're looking at the story. You're looking at the people that make it so wow, wait, you know, and it jumps yeah. off the page. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Now, okay, so is Benjamin Franklin and his family fit into any of your books? You have several series. Yes, he's in my Pennsylvania books. Yeah, he oh. does factor in. He, he factors into two of them in particular, one called The Newcomer and one called The Return. And, okay. Um, and parts of his life that people didn't know about because he had – he was both heavily influenced with the Germans, the Pennsylvania Germans. The Amish were part of them, but there were many Pennsylvania Germans. And in Germantown was not far from Philadelphia. He was there quite a bit. We know that. I think a lot of his proverbs that he's known for, his sort of pithy sayings, are actually, you can find them in the Penn Dutch, which goes back to Germany. So I do feel Benjamin Franklin plays such a role in a lot of my you know, incredible role in a lot of the books. And yeah, I did. I, I love following him and just walking along streets where you can sense he was here, you know, <laughs> just so yeah. Like- my freshman year of college, I was in uh, the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School of Business in Philadelphia. And I came from the middle of nowhere. Like I literally practically went to school in a cow pasture. I mean, it's the middle of nowhere. No offense to everyone who still lives there, but I mean, if, it's the middle of nowhere. And so going to this massive city that is like the birthplace of everything interesting about America, I did not do very well that first year of school because I was like, okay, I know that I need to do this economics work, but I need to see the Liberty Bell and Betsy Ross's house. And (laughs) oh, it's the most incredible place to explore, you know? Well, so that brings me to another point. My mom went to Penn. Oh, and that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. Go Quakers. That's our name too. <laughs> yeah, William Penn. Yeah. And in fact, so my, the reason I'm even interested in the Quakers, interested in the Amish is really a lot of my mom's background. My grandfather was raised plain. He was actually German Baptist, which is Dunkard, which is kind of a, a cousin to the Amish. They dressed plain and lived plain, but they did use electricity and would drive in cars. But they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have a computer. They wouldn't have to, you know, my cousins don't have radios, televisions and anything like that. But my mom's history, um, it was real to me and her family and cousins and my aunts and uncles. And I've always sort of been drawn to people who express their faith in their lifestyle in such a, you know, an an almost alternative way, like they're bucking the trends and yet holding true not their head in the sands by any means, but they are just holding true to traditions they hold dear. Well, I mentioned that my mom was the one who got me interested in Nantucket. So I'm holding up again, the cover of the book is um, this really beautiful cover. And on it is a woman and she's holding, she's a Quaker woman. You know, it's, it's set kind of on an Nantucket beach scene. 
and she's holding up a light ship basket. These are unique to Nantucket. And when we first got the covers, this was back in January, and I was working with the art director. They just had her hold a basket because they generally like a prop in the arms. And it was just sort of, I don't know, a basket of flowers or something. And I just thought, oh, I, I think we can do better. What about one of these Nantucket light ship baskets? And so their art director was kind enough to Google them and realize they came, they were incredibly valuable, worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And she said, not a chance. And I said, okay, I think my mom has one. <gasps> my mom um, lived not too far from me. And, and I have to admit, I don't think they're the genuine real McCoy. I think they are beautiful. Um, Replicas. But what they look like is, again, they're oh. um, taught by the Native Americans. Wampanoag had taught the sailors back in the 1700s and 1800s. Actually, 1800s when the light ships were created. Now, an Nantucket light ship is different from a lighthouse because there's so many dangerous shoals around the island that, you know, constantly shipwrecks all the time. Yeah. And so someone came up with this idea, and I put, kind of wove this into the book as well, of having a light ship that could be out to the sea a bit and do the same thing as the lighthouse and warn ships away, oh. which came, was a great idea. And the problem with it is that it's a very boring job. <laughs> you know, you're, they're out there for long periods of time, just like um, – the whalers, they would actually, these are, this is not real scrimshaw, but this is similar to what is really common in Nantucket. Looks like mm -hmm. ivory, and the sailors on the ship had so much downtime in between chasing whales. I mean, so much. The, the, the captain would give them teeth, the whale's teeth or bones, and they would carve and ended up just having, you know, really intricate carving. It's considered one of America's first folk arts, wow. truly American folk art. If, so, if anybody who's listening only to the audio has a minute to go over to the to the video portion on YouTube, there's this beautiful basket Suzanne's holding. It's just amazing. But I have two. So this one had three ships and a lighthouse, and the other one, sort of similar, has um, a clipper ship on it, which would have been wow. typical of the whaling ship. So, and they're they're different sizes, but they're just beautifully made, little intricate. Personally, I don't know how you really use them today. It's kind of like Queen Elizabeth holding a little handle. But, <laughs> yeah. know, one Kleenex in it. But what was kind of neat is that the art director, back to the cover, said, well, you could ask her, but I don't, I don't think we should be responsible for it. So I asked my mom, and she was fine with it. She wasn't sure where they were. My mom was not the best housekeeper, but she did <laughs> say, you know, you're welcome to. And so I talked to the art director again. She talked to the photographer, and the photographer said, I promise I will return them if we can get them. My sister happened to be visiting my mom. They dug around my mom's place, and they found these two baskets in the back of the closet. Bless my sister's heart. I mean, I, she FedExed them up to the photographer. They were oh. used in the cover shoot. I think it gives a real authenticity to it. Wow. The kind of, to end this part of this story, I, um, this, was, this was December, January. I got the cover back because I get to, you know, I'm sort of like, it's sort of been approved, but the artist, the author can have a, a say-so. And I mm -hmm. sent it over to my mom so she could see it. And my mom called that. It was a Sunday night, and she called right at the end of January because um, she'd just gotten it, and she was so pleased. And my mom, you know, in her, in her 
she was almost 91, but she, it wasn't typical for her to call as much. I don't know if you've noticed that with elderly people, but it's almost, yeah. you know, for my mom, it, it was a big deal for her to initiate a phone call. We had a great phone call and her hearing wasn't great. So that's not always true too, but it was a really sweet phone call. And I, I had dedicated the book to her. Aww. But I remember kind of holding off thinking, oh, should I tell her? Or maybe I'll make it a surprise because the book just came out this Tuesday. And I thought, oh, I think I'd love to have her just find it. I need to, you know, she died a week later and I didn't know that. But this was our last conversation was about this book cover. And, and it was so wow. sweet. Just so, so, so oh. when I got the book, I, I looked at it. I just felt so reminded me of that conversation. I felt so, so blessed we'd had it that yeah she, um, you know was really a part of this so anyway Kleenex. oh yeah i know i'm like i don't have one i'll just wipe on my on my shirt <laughs> I sleep a beautiful beautiful passing oh. just took an afternoon nap and didn't wake up so oh i couldn't be more grateful but i'm so so grateful to the lord for giving me that last little conversation with her and that last yeah. i love you yeah, and and her she must have been you know fairly thrilled that she got to help with this beautiful book cover. Oh, just thrilled! <laughs> yeah, couldn't believe yeah. it. I'm so excited. So, oh, yeah. so it's what really, a gift. Yeah, yeah, it was really, and it kind of came up. It just felt like it came up all over again when I got my author copies. Oh, that is really cool. Those are great stories. Yeah. Oh man. Oh, wow. Yeah. My, my last book was um, dedicated to my mom um, after the fact, but it was the book I was working on when I went to see her and she was having her last week. So it was, yeah, it was kind of cool. Very similar. Yeah. Yeah. Your mom has a tendency if you, if you have that, if you have that space and time where there's time to say goodbye and you know that, um, you know, at some point, you know, if, if they're old enough that, you know, at some point it will be the last conversation. It, it's such a gift to be able to have these conversations where it's like, oh, I'll never forget. You know, one of the last things she said to me was, and you're like, oh, I'll just carry that forever. <laughs> yes. It makes me feel there's a, a verse in Psalms about precious in his sight is the death of his saints. And I just, yeah, I love that because it's just no accident, the timing, and we can feel such peace that the Lord is orchestrating our every move. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know what? That's really, it's such a beautiful, and you're talking about, you know, beautiful, strong women. I'm like, you know, I, I'm trying to think of the, the last time that I uh, read, you know, that sort of relational moment in a book. I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe one of us will have to write that into a book. <laughs> oh. Mother's wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so congratulations again. Um, at the time that we are talking, your book has been out three whole days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, 10 days from the time that this goes out uh, live to for everyone to listen to. So um, last book in the series and um, wow, we've talked a lot about the research and stuff you've done and, and how things were interconnected and how some of it was connected with your own life, which is really cool. Uh, I have a, a thousand questions, <laughs> some of which I had written down. I'm like, oh, there's not enough time to ask you all the questions I had. But we had talked a little bit earlier about, um, you know, some tips that you might have for writers who are listening. Uh, you probably felt like you covered some of them. Was there anything else that uh, you wanted to give as encouragement or tips or anything to writers? My very best tip 
my very best one is came accidentally to me a long time ago and I was reading about in the newspaper, local paper, and there was a, a story about a woman who was turning 100. And they were just after, they were having a birthday party for her, her family and they, they put a mention of it in the paper and they were interviewing her about living that long and the things she'd seen in her 100 years. And then the question came, why do you think you've lived so long? And she answered in a way I'll never forget. And she said, I want to know what happens next. <laughs> and you know, I just think that is the way to age. I think that is the way to write a book. I think that's the way to end a chapter yeah. where we are just always on our toes. You know, as we're looking in our children's lives and our grandchildren's lives, instead of just back on our heels, it's like, what happens next? I want to see. I want to be here to see. So that's, that's awesome. That's tip. And I, I hope that, you know, I hope that helps. Yeah. Well, and you know what? What a, I, I think it's a great storytelling way to look at things that we have broken down into sort of the, the more scientific chunks of you need a cliffhanger at the end of every chapter. Yes, we know it, but, but how do you write it? And there's so many like little tips that we, we've developed over, over you know, hundreds of years of telling stories that sometimes sound like some sort of a rule that nobody really knows how you do it though. But that's the most beautiful way of like putting the, the legs into how do you tell a book with, with cliffhangers in it? Well, just what happens next? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. it. It's almost like a soft tennis shot. It doesn't have to be hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are some books that um, weren't really something that I would have seen myself reading or certainly not finishing that I got all the way to the end because the author was really, really good at, um, like you said, even the, the soft tennis volley of making me go, okay, well, I'm really not into this book. It's not my genre, but I have to read to the end of the chapter because it's the way that I read books and then I'll quit. But by the time I get to the end of the chapter, I'm like, okay, just one more though. Cause I just want to know like, what's this about? And I'll read the entire book that way. <laughs> That's a pretty good author. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Oh man! Now you have um, you have another book coming out. Um, I know it's soonish, but I don't know the date. Called Mending Fences. Yes, on February second comes another Amish series coming out called The Deacon's Family, and it's a different kind of an Amish book than the. I think the whole series will be. I'm working on the second one now, but this first one is about a fellow who'd been in a previous series and the last we saw of him, he was just the town terror, like the holy terror, you know, blowing up people's mailboxes. And, and that was, that was light. He got worse and worse problems with alcohol and he's carted off to rehab. So he's now out of rehab, coming back, trying to get his, figure out who he is. Can he live in this world? You know, has he outgrown it or is, does he need to face it? And that's what the whole book's about. And I've been really pleased to my surprise because the editors and the proofreaders and all have felt very personally touched by it from, oh. and it's a meaningful experience for me to just see the responses back. So I think this book will have, I always like to write beyond the bonnets and buggies and beards to yeah. the heart. and. Um, and this uses a lot, I guess the theme you could say is, is not only forgiveness, but it's making amends. It's mending fences. Yeah. 
what is the damage I've caused? I've got to own up to it, which is not easy. That's even when you have a fuss with your husband, it's not easy to sort of not just say, I'm sorry, but what can I do differently? Right, right, exactly. Now, there's one word that you said that made me ask myself, is this a contemporary series? And that's when you said rehab. So is this set in present day? This is. Most of them are. Most of my books are. I've had a couple of historical series, and I love it. That's probably where my, you know, like, if I could write anything and whenever. I mean, I think I love digging for the history, but um, most of them are historical or contemporary. And in fact, after this many fences comes another series that is not Amish, not Quaker. It is a Christian inspirational fiction, but it's set in modern day Maine off the coast where a older, a father about my age actually has three daughters that are kind of estranged, not in a negative way, just in a, they're floating away. And he buys this bankrupt Island and tries to coax them back together. And that's going to be the three sisters Island series. I just finished the first one and, just loved it. It's so fun to, to drop off. I was telling my editor, I'm so used to the boundaries of the Amish and the Quakers that were, you know, you're really within, you can't, there's certain things, it's a, a rural setting, it's, you're not going to have a cell phone go off, you know, things like that. And all of a sudden, I feel like, like I'm, sky's the limit. I mean, I, it's almost harder to write <laughs> without the boundaries, but it took me a while, but then I, I, I got it up and going and I love the book. I love it. I think it's going to be a, a really fun series. Each oh, sister wow. is the main character. Okay. Wow. Okay. So let's, um, let's make sure everybody's clear. So the, the series that we've been talking mostly about, because the brand new book coming out, started with uh, book one is Phoebe's Light and book two is Minding the Light. Minding, not mining, I have to enunciate. And then the brand new book is The Light Before Day. And so that wraps up that trilogy, and that's the Nantucket Legacy series. And then Mending the Title, Kitty, because it's all, that's the Quaker. There's the light within. So that's why the light is in all three titles. So, oh, I like it. (laughs) Okay. And then Mending Fences is book two of a series. Is that right? And so what's book one, and is it out yet? Actually, it's book one of this series. Oh, okay. But it's book one of a new series called The Deacon's Family. Don't feel bad because my editors even get mixed up. Okay, good. I have not gotten mixed up, but (laughs) there's a lot. I've been putting out, you know, I'm grateful for it, three books a year. So it is going um, from one to the next to the next. Well, that's kind of nice because you get out the entire series. The whole story comes out of your head every year. Except right now they're going to be jagged so it's, oh. a little, it's a little challenging but I agree with you it's it would be nice to it's kind of easiest to have it all bundled together yeah. that's the way it was for the, the Nantucket legacy this deacon's family will will be a little bit split up but um but a wonderful story after that comes the um what's the name of the three sisters island and the name of it is the summer on a tide I think it's on a summer tide on a summer tide okay yeah and that will awesome. be the one set in Maine, and that comes out in May. And then back to the next, I guess the fall will be the book I'm working on right now, which is called Stitches in Time, and that's book two of the Deacon's Family. And I am so grateful that you even bring this up because I'm sure people are like, I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Stay tuned. 
Yeah, stay tuned. Exactly. Because, um, you know, everybody has their own um, things that uh, pick their interests to pick their interests. And um, so some people are going to be really interested in reading the historicals that you just finished that series. And other people are going to be like, oh, wait a minute, um, contemporary. That sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah, Amish only. Amish fans are very loyal to their genre. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. This has been great fun and so interesting. You're a great interviewer. I appreciate your time today. Oh, thanks. Well, listen, let's make sure that everybody knows um, where they can find you and your books. And let's just mention again, because I believe that on the day that this interview comes out, which will be October 11th, 2018, it'll be exactly one week later, October 18th, 2018, right? That you're going to do a speaking engagement. So let's just cover everything so that everybody knows where they can find you, your books, and, and, uh, and hear you speak if they can get over there. Yeah, well, so the speaking event will be at the Peter Folger Whaley Museum, grandfather to Benjamin Franklin, worth the trip by itself. I just have a bonus thrown in there. And that'll be 12 o'clock noon at the um, right downtown Whaley Museum in Nantucket Island on Thursday, October 18th. And then um, to find me, I love to hear from readers. I'm at www.facebook, no, Facebook, I'm sorry, SuzanneWoodsFisher.com. I am on Facebook also and Instagram and and I have a newsletter, too, which I think is one of the best ways to stay informed. And you can go to my website, SuzanneWoodsFisher.com, and get, your, get to the newsletter pretty easily. Because I find that's becoming increasingly like that's a sticky place where I feel comfortable showing more about my family than I do maybe on social media and other and things that are coming up. And um, I do a lot of giveaways and a lot of contests. So it's a, a beneficial mutually beneficial place to be. So. Excellent. And then your books are everywhere books are sold? They are. Yes, they are. In fact, I'm actually right now have a special deal where if you will, if you order um, or buy The Light Before Day anywhere, favorite bookstore, go to Amazon. CBD has the best price on it right now. Um, you know, books, bnn.com, bnn.com, um, Baker Bookhouse. We've got a deal where you go to my website, punch in your receipt number, and I'm going to send you a free Christmas novella. So I have, until the supplies last, I have in my garage a couple of boxes and they're going fast, but everyone's, give it a try. Please try to get it because they're, they're wonderful stories and just in time. Oh, that's nice. An actual paper book, not an e-book. <laughs> there are two novellas put together. So it's, it's quite a nice little gift and I'll sign them if people would like them. So. Oh, that sounds lovely. Terrific. And just for people who are um, running or running errands or something while they're listening, so you are Suzanne with a Z, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E, Woods, Fisher, just the regular kind, F-I-S-H-E-R, no, no C or anything in there. Exactly. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. This has been delightful. Thanks, Kitty. It's really been nice to meet you, and I hope we'll meet in person one day. That would be great. Sweden. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sharing <laughs> good night to you.